Well, we're going to talk about vocations this morning, about our jobs. I have an interesting statistic for you that I came across this week. Over the course of your life, the average American will spend 90,000 hours at work. It's a lot of hours. <laughs> if you work hour to hour, that feels overwhelming, doesn't it? In contrast, even if you go to church every single Sunday of your entire life, you will only spend about 9,000 hours here. So just to state the obvious, you are going to spend 10 times more of your life at work than at church. And yet, the funny thing is, we tend to assume that God cares much more about our time here at church than he cares about our time at work. We, we assume he cares a lot about this, because here we are, we're with God, we're, we're worshiping God, we're reading his word, we're praying together. God cares a lot about that, but work, it's just my job. It's just like meetings and, and teaching and sales calls. Why would God care about my vocation as, as a teacher, manager, salesman, or mechanic? Well, let me just give away the big idea this morning. So here, here it is. I'm not going to make you work for it. Just right off the bat. According to God's word, and especially the passages we're studying this semester, the law, from Exodus to Deuteronomy, God wants you to understand that your work matters to him as much as your church attendance. Your time at your job, Monday through Friday, matters as much to God as your time in this building on Sunday mornings. That's really clear. When you read the law, what you will discover very easily is that God's law speaks to every aspect of human life, including your work. So for the Jews, what's very interesting, they did not live with a secular, sacred divide in life. That, that was completely foreign to them. To the Jew, every day was holy. Every day mattered to God, not just the weekends, but the weekdays as well. So the Jews understood this. They understood that God cared about their professions. He, they understood that God expected us to do our jobs well in a way that pleases him and blesses others. And, and that's not only true in the Old Testament. Paul brings that forward into the New Testament, a very significant verse, Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, and he's talking about jobs, professions, careers, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for men. In other words, when you do your job as a teacher, an engineer, a lawyer, a doctor, a mechanic, whatever it might be, you are doing that job to God. So if, if you're an engineer out there and you come ask me, well, Blake, how do I follow Christ well? I'm not just going to tell you, well, uh, please come to church every Sunday and maybe think about leading a Bible study. No, I'm, I'm going to tell you, be a really good engineer, Honor God by doing great work at your job and also come to church on Sundays and maybe think about leading a Bible study. Your job matters greatly to God. And students, this is so important for you to, to listen to this because I've had so many students come and talk to me over the last 15 years who they, they come to the faith in college or they really begin to follow God passionately in college and they're so excited. 
They want to spend all their time with Jesus in his word. They, they're doing all these Bible studies and they're serving in all these charities. That's what they care about. And so out of that excitement, they're tempted to de-emphasize their studies. Because come on, grades, who cares about that? There's no eternal significance in grades. What God wants is for me to be in the Bible. And, and so they want to focus on that which is eternal. They, they don't care about their grades and they come and tell me, well, here's my deal. My parents are upset because I'm in three Bible studies serving at four charities and I'm failing calculus. What should I do? And I tell them what you got to understand. God cares about your studies as much as he cares about your Bible studies. Your studies are actually eternally significant. Why? Because one day you will stand before Jesus and he will judge you for how you used his gifts in this life. And guess what college is? A gift. It's a gift that Jesus has given you. And so he's going to hold you accountable. How did you use that gift? Students, your studies are your job. And God cares deeply about your jobs. Do them well. Study hard. Make that a priority in your life. Jesus cares deeply about our work. So, God cares deeply about our work. Why? Well, because God created us to work. That's why he cares so much about it. He created humanity to do stuff to do jobs and occupations, to do work. That's not a result of the fall. That goes back before the fall into sin. Here's Genesis chapter 2. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. So from the very beginning, Genesis chapter 2, before the fall, God creates humanity and places them in his garden to cultivate and keep it. So let's just be really clear. At this point in human history, there are no Bible studies. There is no church to attend, but there is work. There's work to do. Adam was created to work. And and those verbs at the end, cultivate and keep, they're very fascinating. They're the work of a master gardener. That was our first job. It's human race. To be master gardeners, just like our dad, because that was God's job. He planted this Garden of Eden, and then he offered us the opportunity to join him in his profession, to come and do this job with him, to to guard the garden and, and to bring out all that would flourish in it and to expand the garden all over the face of the earth. That was our job from the very beginning. God created human beings to work. Work is good and important and honorable in God's eyes. You see that in Genesis. You also see that in Exodus. God says, see, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I have filled him with the spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge, and in all kinds of craftsmanship to make artistic designs for work in gold and silver and in bronze and in the cutting of stones. He, that is God, has filled them with skill to perform every work of an engraver and of a designer and of an embroiderer in blue and in purple and scarlet material and in fine linen and of a weaver as performers of every work and makers of design. What's really fascinating to me in this passage is that when we tend to think about God's gifts to us, we tend to only think about the spiritual gifts, like forgiveness 
and the Holy Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit, like love, joy, peace, patience, all that. Those are wonderful gifts from God, but we tend not to think about these gifts. God's gifts include our vocational abilities. The skills and talents that we use in our work are equally gifts from God. He has entrusted these amazing gifts to us. And so I I want people to understand the carpenter's fine attention to detail, that is a gift from God. And the metal worker's strength to wield a hammer and shape metal, that is a gift from God. And the doctor's skill in diagnosing a patient, that is a gift from God that is equal to these spiritual gifts like love, joy, peace, and patience. God cares about our vocation that's proven by how he has given us these gifts that enable us to do our jobs well. Humanity was created by God to do meaningful work. And that's actually the, the reality, the, the biblical truth behind one of the most beautiful ministries in this community, the B community that meets here at Southwood. I want to show you a quick video to give you a sense of what this amazing community that meets here at Southwood is all about. The B community is a God-centered vocational program for adults with disabilities a place of belonging, meaningful work, and lifelong learning. As many as 80% of adults with intellectual and developmental disabilities are unemployed nationwide. Our artisans skillfully craft bee products by hand, and every beautiful, quality-crafted product is sold in local markets. Every one of us is made in the image of God. We have dignity, worth, and the divine design to work meaningfully and contribute to society. The Bee Community creates a space for walls to come down between people with and without disabilities to enter into authentic relationships. People of all abilities and talents can use their gifting for the glory of God and the good of others. And we would love for you to contribute your time and talents to our mission. Learn more and apply at thebecommunity.com slash volunteer. The B Community exists... Because we believe that all humans were created by God for significant work. And that includes adults with disabilities. And so this ministry gives them an opportunity to use their God-given gifts in a, in a significant way. So we want to invite you to be involved with the B community. So I, I'm just going to make just a, a, a direct challenge to you to be involved with the B community um, we need people to donate money and time. So if, if you would like to donate to the B community, that would be awesome. You can just go to their website, thebcommunity.com. If you would like to volunteer, we have lots of volunteer opportunities. You can work alongside the artisans. You can help with sales and marketing and communication and, and, and finances, all that kind of stuff. We would love to have you consider volunteering with the B community. Also, parents of young kids, we have an amazing opportunity coming up. B is going to be hosting a make-and-take family-friendly event on November 1st. 
So November 1st, 3.30 to 4.30 p.m., right here at Southwood, kids and parents are going to work alongside these artisans to make and then take home designer dog treats that they, that they create. The purpose here is to give families an opportunity to talk about how God created us with value and with meaningful work in mind, and that includes those with disabilities. So it's going to be an awesome opportunity for families to engage in these wonderful life-giving conversations. God created all of us to work. That's why our work matters to him. It matters deeply to God. So what I want to do now is I want to transition and I want to talk about specific vocations. God's law, so Exodus or Deuteronomy, gives a lot of specific laws governing certain jobs and vocations and professions. And I want to talk about some of those specific vocations this morning. Now, it's important to say right off the bat, and we've said this before, but I want to be really, really clear, we are no longer under the law. When Jesus died on the cross, he satisfied the Mosaic law completely and set it aside. What that means is that the detailed commands of the Mosaic law are no longer over you. You are not required to follow those. However, behind every specific command is an eternal principle. And because God never changes, those eternal principles never change. The the values and priorities that you see in God's law still abide today. So these principles behind the specific commands, that's what I want to walk you through. Those continue to apply to all of us today. Now here's the challenge. I'm going to give you these unchanging principles and then you are going to want to know how exactly do I apply that principle at my job tomorrow, Blake? And I'm going to tell you, I don't know. Why don't I know? Because we live in the age of the spirit, not in the age of the law. The law told you exactly what to do in checklist form. You you knew all the details, all the specifics, but that's not how God works in the age of the spirit. In this age, God guides each of us individually. God challenges us to be in the word ourselves, be praying ourselves, be asking the spirit to guide us to how we apply these principles at our job, at our business. And so this morning, I'm not going to give you the specifics, and I know that's going to frustrate a lot of you. What I'm going to do is give you the principles and challenge you to go prayerfully, biblically apply these principles to your life. The Holy Spirit will lead you if you will follow him. Okay, so I'm going to walk you through these guiding principles. We're going to look at three classes of jobs, so three basic vocations. It's not going to cover everyone in the room I'm sorry I have limited time. I'd keep going, but you guys got to go. So I can only cover a few. This will cover many of us, though. Okay, so three specific types of vocations. Let's start with the artists and craftsmen in the room. So artists and craftsmen, what do I mean here? I mean people who make things, typically with their hands. I'm talking about artists, carpenters, fabricators, graphic designers, website creators, uh, musicians, people who use their God-given creativity to, to make something beautiful. What does the law say to you? Well, we actually already read those passages that we read in Genesis and Exodus. What they tell us for you artists and craftsmen is that what you are doing in your job is wonderful. 
It is beautiful when you create something. Why? Because you're being like your God. You're being like your heavenly father. He is the greatest content creator in in the universe. He loves to create beautiful things. You are joining him in that. You are being like God, using these creative abilities to make something beautiful, and that is lovely to God. And so what does God want you to remember in your work? So artists and craftsmen, what does he want you to remember? That your skills and creativity come from him. All that creativity, all that skill, all that talent, it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to God. He has loaned it to you for a time while you're on earth. It belongs to him and he wants you to use it to to glorify him and to bless others. And so the point is, even if you are an amazing artist, amazing musician, amazing craftsman, there is no place for pride in your craft. No place for arrogance. Because you didn't make that gift. God gave it to you. God gave you all your abilities and talents. And so God gets all the glory. So let me give you an example. What does it look like to use God-given creative talent in a way that pleases God? Well, a few years ago, we had a a woman named Emily Mills, who is our graphic designer here at Grace. She moved to Nashville to continue to hone and refine her skills. I continue to follow her because her artistic talent is phenomenal. I love it. She's become an amazing, renowned sketch artist. So what Emily does, she's hired to go to conferences. Some are secular, some are spiritual, and as the conference is happening, she sketches it so that everyone who's participating will have a permanent record in art of that conference so they can remember it and they can use it, and it's beautiful, it's masterful. She now does it at the church that she's at every Sunday. I think that's like the coolest thing. Can you imagine every time you leave church, you get art to take with you to remind you of what you learned? What Emily is doing is using her artistic talents to bless people, and God loves that. Now, that's true whether you're doing overtly Christian art or totally secular art. If you're doing it to the glory of God to bless people, you're pleasing God. So, artists and craftsmen in the room, honor God with these amazing gifts and recognize how wonderful it is when you get to create something. You're getting to be like your Heavenly Father. All right, next class of vocation. These are my people. Engineers, architects, and builders, I love you all. So, our key verse is going to be, sound a little odd. Why did I pick this verse? Deuteronomy 22.8, I'll explain in a moment. When you build a new house, make a parapet around your roof so that you may not bring the guilt of bloodshed on your house if someone falls from the roof. A uh, little bit of a background for the non-architects in the room. Here's a parapet. It's a little wall, kind of half-height wall, at the top of a building. Now, in the ancient world, you needed a parapet on the top of your house because the roof was an extra room. You notice the stairway. All houses had stairways so that people, the family, could get up to the roof. They used it as a room of their house. People were up there all the time. The parapet protected them from falling off the house to their death, particularly it helped kids. I mean, you imagine parents of toddlers letting your toddler loose on your roof. That sounds crazy. So they had to build parapets, but parapets cost extra money and time. It was harder to build a house with a parapet. Well, what God is saying, the point behind this law, the enduring principle, is that we must prioritize human life and safety over profit. That's the point here. 
Engineers, architects, builders, those of you who design stuff that people use, you are expected by God to prioritize human life and safety over profit. Why? Because humans are made in the image of God. So there are no expendable humans. Humans matter more than anything else on this planet to God. And so you must take care of people in your design work. That's a moral imperative. So I'll give you an example of this from my own life. When I graduated from A&M, mechanical engineering, I went to work up in the Northeast at a company, and I was tasked to convert a transit bus to an electric bus, electric vehicle, for transit work. And in doing this design work, I discovered a really serious design flaw with the brake system that could cause the bus to spin out and have a, a really dangerous accident. And so I told my managers about this, but, but they were under a very tight schedule and a very tight budget, so they told me, just get back to work. Well, that really bothered me. I'm a follower of Christ. These people riding on the bus, they're made in his image. I don't get to ignore this. And so I wrote a letter and sent it to the ownership of the company, and that reflected very badly on me at that company. That cost me standing with my bosses who were angry about what I did. But, but that's what we have to do. Engineers, architects, builders, designers, you must prioritize human safety and life above profit even when it costs you. Please do not be the guy they reference in engineering ethics classes. <laughs> Don't do that. Go the extra mile for safety, and for human life. Be an example of that, okay? Because human life matters deeply to God. Okay, so engineers, architects, and builders, they're your marching orders. Now, third class, which gets by far the most commands, executives, owners, bankers, and investors. You guys have by far the most commands in Scripture. That's not really a surprise. You get to call the shots most of the time. You get to make the decisions that companies operate on. And so God has a great deal to say to you. With great power comes great responsibility. And so God has a lot of commands for the executives, owners, bankers, and investors in the room. So I'm going to walk you through some of these expectations from God for how you do your job. Number one, God expects you to take care of your employees. So the key verse here is Deuteronomy 24. Do not take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy, whether he is a brother Israelite or an alien living in one of your towns. Pay him his wages each day before sunset because he's poor and is counting on it. Otherwise, he may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. So let's be really clear. When you set wage policies, there is morality in that action. You can do it in a way that's righteous, that pleases God. You can do it in a way that's sinful, that will be judged by God. So, in ancient Israel, employers were expected to pay the worker his wage on the day he worked. Why? Because for the ancient world, most people lived hand to mouth. They lived day to day. So if you waited till the next day for whatever reason, that family would go without food that day, and that was unacceptable to God. So you were required to pay your employees in a, in a fair and equitable and timely way. Now, we don't live in that context. Most of us get paid biweekly or something like that, and God's fine with that. It's not about the particulars. Here is the abiding point. The abiding point of this is that you must, 
when you set salaries and payroll, do it with an eye to what your employees need in order to take care of themselves and their families. When you set salaries, you must think about what does my employee need to take care of himself or herself and their family. So if you're setting payroll policies, if you're setting salaries, and the only thing you think about is what is the absolute least I can pay someone to get this done, that is not okay with God. You're not allowed to do that. You must think about what is best to take care of my employee. What's best to take care of his or her family? God expects you to have your employees best in mind when you set wages. Now, will that cost your business money? Yes and no. Yes in the short term, probably no in the long term. Because God designed his laws into the universe in which we live. And so there are these universal principles that are true. When you obey this command and you take really gracious, compassionate care of your employees, guess what? They want to give you their best work. That benefits your business in the long term. The key for us as employers is that we won't get so fixated on short-term profits and cost-cutting that we stop focusing on what's best for those who work for us. We must care deeply about their well-being. That's a moral imperative. So keep your eyes focused on caring compassionately for your employees. Second rule for executives, owners, bankers, investors. We must tell the truth to customers, partners, regulators, competitors at all times. So here's a couple verses for you. Deuteronomy 19, verse 14. Do not move your neighbor's boundary stones set up by your predecessors and the inheritance you receive and the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess. What was going on is there were stones between plots of land and if no one was around, if everyone's off at a party, you might be tempted to just take that boundary stone and move it. Just move it a foot. Maybe next year you move it another foot. Next year you move it another foot to enlarge your property. God's saying, no, you are never allowed to do that. Here's another key verse for you, Leviticus 19. Do not use dishonest standards when measuring length, weight, or quantity. told you the law gets into a lot of details. Use honest scales and honest weights. Honest scales and honest weights. God's point is you are never allowed to cheat a customer or a partner or a regulator or a competitor. You must always operate your business, your sales, with absolute integrity and honesty. So if you are in a position where you control a business or you are doing sales or whatever it might be, cheating is never okay. Deception, never okay. Exaggeration, never okay. Manipulation, never okay. Not with God. Now, what about the fact that that's done all the time out there in the business world? Well, that doesn't matter. We're called to obey God in our business and our sales no matter what. Will that cost you more in the end? Again, maybe, maybe not. Enron cheated a lot of people. How did that work out for him in the end? Not so well. God has called us to operate with absolute integrity and honesty in everything that we do. All right. Next command for us executives, owners, bankers, investors, actively help the poor with your business. Here's a key verse for this one, Leviticus 19, 9 through 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. So the idea here... 
was that landowners, farmers, investors, um, you were always to leave some portion of your land unharvested. Whether it was farming or a vineyard, you were always to leave the margin so that the poor could come and have food to, to care for their families. The Israelites were expected to do that. Israelites who did that well were honored by God. So there's a man named Boaz in the book of Ruth, and God honors this man. And, and the primary reason is, is because he was generous. He always made sure to leave margins when he was harvesting that the poor could come. And he would help them to make sure that they and their families were taken care of. Now, how does that work out today? Well, the big idea here is that God expects that you will use your business or your assets to care for the poor. In other words, and I think this is something that a lot of us don't think about often. In God's eyes, it's not okay to only be generous in your private finances. God expects you to be generous with all finances that you control. So if you own or control a business or an investment, God expects that you will use part of it to bless the poor, to lift up poor families. You're to use your business for that end. Now, I'll give you a couple practical examples, because a lot of you are probably like, wait, what does this look like? I don't, I don't farm, so how does this work for me? Two really easy, simple-to-understand examples. Number one, developers who leave some percentage of apartments or lots for HUD voucher families. This is beautiful. So you have a lot of land you're developing into a lot of houses, or you're building an apartment complex. You leave some percentage of units or lots specifically for families on HUD vouchers, meaning families who are living in poverty. That will cost you. You're not maximizing your profit. You're sacrificing the profit you could have made on that percentage of units or lots, and yet you are pleasing God because you're using your business and investments to lift up poor families. This would be a beautiful thing for the developers in this room to do. It would be transformative in our community if you take a little hit on profit to lift up families living off of HUD vouchers. That'd be beautiful. Second example for you. Businesses that participated in our Youth Impact Summer Work Initiative. So Youth Impact, our ministry to at-risk kids, under-resourced kids in the community, they launched this summer work initiative where they partnered high school kids in their program with local businesses. And, and for these businesses, they were hiring these kids for the summer, and they're going to train them, and they're going to invest in them. That's going to cost them. Because you're hiring kids without the skills. They don't come with the skills and experiences that you want. But you say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take that cost because this can be transformative in the life of this kid. I can give him the skills and the experiences and the resume so that he can have a stable job for the rest of his life. That was beautiful for you business owners that did that. What a great way to apply Leviticus 19 in our community. You take a little bit of hit of the profit you could have maximized to raise up a kid who can now have a financial stable future. Okay, so beautiful example for us. All right, next principle for us. Turn to Leviticus 25. This one is going to be crazy. This one's going to blow your mind a little bit. Leviticus chapter 25. So next principle for executives, owners, bankers, and investors. Share your wealth with the less fortunate. Share your wealth with the less fortunate. So Leviticus chapter 25, we're going to start in verse 10. 
You shall thus consecrate the 50th year and proclaim a release through the land to all its inhabitants. So every 50th year, you proclaim this release. It shall be a jubilee for you. They called it the year of jubilee. And each of you shall return to his own property, and each of you shall return to his family. You shall have the 50th year as a jubilee. You shall not sow nor reap its aftergrowth, nor gather in from its untrimmed vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat its crops out of the field. On this year of jubilee, each of you shall return to his own property. If you make a sale, moreover, to your friend or buy from your friend's hand, you shall not wrong one another. Corresponding to the number of years after the jubilee, you shall buy from your friend. He is to sell to you according to the number of years of crops. In proportion to the extent of the years, you shall increase its price. And in proportion to the fewness of the years, you shall diminish its price. For it is a number of crops he is selling to you. So you shall not wrong one another, but you shall fear your God. For I am the Lord your God. Now jump down to verse 23. The land, moreover, shall not be sold permanently, for the land is mine, for you are but aliens and sojourners with me. Skip down to verse 28. But if he, a poor Israelite, has not found sufficient means to get it, the land, back for himself, then what he has sold shall remain in the hands of its purchasers until the year of Jubilee. But at the Jubilee it shall revert, that he may return to his property. So this is amazing. What the Israelites had in the year of Jubilee was a nationwide return to ancestral property. So whatever property your family inherited from God at the very beginning of Israel, every 50th year, it reset. doesn't matter who owns the property. It goes back to those, in, to those, to those ancestral lineage to the ancestral ownership. So the idea was that no one in Israel could own more land than what their family was given by God at the very beginning forever. You could own it up to 49 years. So after a year of Jubilee, you could buy your neighbor's land if he was poor and needed to sell it to you. 49 years later, doesn't matter what has happened in the world. It's his again. And so what this did in Israel, again, it's really amazing. Because of the year of, gener- of Jubilee, there was no generational poverty in Israel when this law was practiced. But, here's the flip side, there was also no massive inherited wealth in Israel. It was not allowed. All land had to revert. God wanted the Israelites who were wealthy to understand that their wealth and their land all belonged to God. All of it was his. It wasn't their land. It wasn't their money. They were just stewards of that land, of that wealth for a limited time. And they were expected to use much of their wealth and land to lift poor families out of poverty. We are expected to do the same. Now let me be clear. I do not know how this law should be applied in our country. That is really complicated. I I don't know exactly politically or economically what to do with this. I am not advocating for particular political or economic policies here. I'm talking about our hearts and our free choices as followers of Jesus. If you are blessed with great wealth, you are called by God to recognize it is not your money. It's his money loaned to you for a brief time, and he expects you to use it sacrificially to lift families out of poverty. 
The point behind passages like Leviticus 25 is with great wealth comes great responsibility to lift up families living in poverty. So let me give you an example, incredible example that happened this week, actually, um, for OnRamp, the ministry I run, the charity. Uh, I interviewed a mom here in our community. She was a hardworking, or she is a hardworking mom of seven kids. She works a full-time job and takes all the overtime that she possibly can. And yet with rent and food and health care, she has no money left over for a vehicle. So she, she can't get to work. So she has to use Uber, and that's costing her 150 bucks a week. And that's a lot when you're earning like minimum wage and trying to care for seven kids. So she was desperate for a vehicle. So uh, her sponsors brought her to us. She needs an SUV. We talked it through. We prayed with her. We told her, though, the challenge here, it's going to take a while. Like, like, we need to get you an SUV for seven kids. That's going to cost us like $7,500 to get you that vehicle. So please be praying that God will provide. So we prayed for her at the coffee shop. We're sitting there. We pray for her that God will provide. And then she, she leaves. One of the sponsors takes her home. The other sponsor and I are talking. And it just so happened that there was a young college student at a nearby table who unintentionally overheard. She couldn't help it. We were kind of loud. She heard and she comes up to the sponsor and I after the conversation and she says, excuse me, can, can I help this woman? Can, can I give to her need? And, and we thought, well, of, of course you can. We would love to have you give. I'm thinking, you know, maybe 20 bucks or 30 bucks. That'll help us. You know, it'll take a while. She says, well, it, it turns out... Um, I just received an inheritance from my family, and I've been praying for the opportunity to tithe that inheritance, and it's exactly $7,500. So she gave us $7,500. So now, this amazing, hardworking mom in our community is going to get an SUV. That's incredible. That is what Leviticus 25 looks like today. This young college student understands what so many adults don't. An inheritance is a stewardship. God has given it to you for a time so you can use it to lift up families living in poverty. So beautiful. I love this story. Okay, final command for executives, owners, bankers, investors. Lend your money graciously. If one of your countrymen becomes poor and is unable to support himself among you, help him as you would an alien or a temporary resident so he can continue to live among you. Do not take interest of any kind from him, but fear your God so that your countrymen may continue to live among you. You must not lend him money at interest or sell him food at profit. Now, let me be clear. Again, we're not under the details of the law. As best I can tell, it is okay in our economy, in our context, to charge interest on loans that we make. But the abiding principle is you must loan your money in a way that is gracious. And so particularly what that means is you may never charge oppressive interest. You may never trap people in debt, and you may never take advantage of the poor. And this is a really big deal in our economy. This happens all the time in our economy, and it especially hurts the poor. So I'm going to give you two really specific examples, and and it's, it's going to be pretty direct. So example number one, payday and title loans. In many cases, these loans and the business behind them are immoral. Not in every case. I I believe there are probably some exceptions out there, companies that are genuinely trying to help the poor. But in most cases, the ones I know of, these businesses exist to take advantage of the poor for profit. 
You may not know this, but the typical annual percentage rate of interest on a payday loan in America is 400%. That's straight up immoral. Straight up immoral. Just because a desperate person will say yes to the loan you are offering them does not make it moral business. They're desperate. They need help. So help them. Don't trap them or take advantage of them. God will judge those behind that industry. I'll give you a second example. An on-ramp client we interviewed was trying desperately to buy a car because she couldn't get to work. That happens all the time in our town. She's going to lose her job, lose everything. So she's trying desperately to get to work. Doesn't have good credit. Doesn't have a lot of money saved. Had exactly $1,000. The only place in our town that was willing to deal with her at her economic level, because dealerships don't deal at kind of those numbers, uh, was a super shady place. Guy came out and wanted $10,000 for a car with 300,000 miles on it. Unless it's a Ferrari, that's nuts. He told her, well, I know you don't have $10,000. Just give me the $1,000 cash you have now and just come back in two weeks and give me $750. And then come back in two weeks after that and give me $750. And add that up for a moment. $1,500 a month for a car with 300,000 miles on it. If, if I wasn't a pastor, I'd torch that place. That makes me so <laughs> furious that someone would try to take such advantage of a poor, desperate mom trying not to lose her job in her home. That story happens all the time in our community and in this state. People are in desperate need and there are so many crooks out there who are taking advantage of the poor who have nowhere else to turn for the necessities of life. And so God wants us, his people, to be willing to stand in the gap and help those without access to good loans. So what does that look like? Two beautiful examples I've seen in churches in our, in our area. Um, number one, I love it when churches will raise money, like hundreds of thousands of dollars to pay off medical debt for families in need. That's beautiful because that gives them a whole new future. That hits the reset button for them. They now have access to good credit. They can build businesses. They can move forward. Another beautiful example, ministries that will do microloans to the poor um, or, or foreigners or whoever it might be who don't have access to typical credit resources, they'll offer microloans at zero or very low interest to help those people get an education or build a business. That is beautiful. I hope Christians will do that all the time. That is a wonderful thing. That is this passage in action. Now, let's be honest with one another for a moment. I know that many of you, especially those of you who are executives, owners, bankers, investors, you are saying to yourself right now, well, Blake, that sounds beautiful, but it's just not realistic. That's too costly. That's too complicated. There's no way I could make that work. My business will fail if I do that. Well, guess what? That's actually exactly what the Israelites said. They skipped almost every year of Jubilee. It's just too costly. Just too too much. I can't do that. The Israelites, because of how costly these vocational rules were, they disobeyed for most of the Old Testament. They turned a blind eye to the poor and eventually extorted the poor and took their land. They cheated their employees. They cheated God. They skipped almost every year of Jubilee, almost every Sabbath year. They disobeyed because it was so costly. So what did God do? Well, if you know the story, he kicked them off his land. Remember, this is my land. It's my wealth. 
If you're not going to use it in the way I've told you, I'll take it back. And so he sent them into exile. He disciplined them because of their disobedience to these commands. So obeying God in our work, it is going to cost us. I'm not going to beat around the bush. For you to follow these rules, all these rules, it will cost you. But obedience is always worth the cost. In this life and the next life, it's always worth the cost. So let me really take this home now. Let's get personal. In your business, what comes first to you? Your profit or your obedience? There is nothing immoral about profit, but it becomes immoral when you make it first. Profit's fine as long as it's second. As long as obedience to God comes first and all of these regulations God has given us, profit's okay. But if profit is first, if it's what's most important to us, then it becomes a sin for us. And so the question for us, as we look at at this command, is simply, are you going to trust God even when it doesn't seem to make economic sense? For most of the Old Testament, the Israelites said no. We will not trust God. We will do what makes most economic sense no matter what, and God punished them for that. Will you be different? Will you say to God, God, I offer you everything? You just sang it earlier this morning. Remember that? I surrender all. Guess what that includes? Your business. Your profit. All of that. You surrender it to God. Say, God, I give you my business. I give you my assets. I give you my money. I give you my land. I give you my profit. I give you everything to use as you see fit. Obedience to you comes first. And whatever you do with my business, God never promised your business is going to make it. He did not make that promise. Whatever you want to do with my business, my assets, my investments, guys, that's your business. I'm going to obey. Will you trust God even when it doesn't seem to make economic sense? Are you willing to risk your business profit for the sake of obeying God? That's what God expects. Are you willing to offer God all the challenges, all the complexities that right now it just feels to you like it can't be overcome. There's no way I could do this. Will you offer that to God and say, God, please, please help me to trust that you know what is best. Please help me to believe that if I will obey these radical, costly commands, you will honor that. Whether it's in this life or the next life, you will honor that. Because obedience to God is always worth it. God cares deeply about your job, deeply about what you do Monday through Friday to earn a living. Will you honor God with your work? If not, you're not honoring God. doesn't matter what you do Sunday and Saturday. If you're not honoring God with your work, you're not honoring God. Will you honor God with your work? Now, if you're new to work, if you're just starting out a career or a vocation, I do want to let you know we have a great resource for you. We teach a class called Faith at Work. It lasts for three Sundays here at Southwood. You can see the dates down there, October 27th, November 3rd, November 10th. It's right in the fellowship hall through the foyer. We would love to have you come if you're a recent graduate or you're starting a job or a career or just gone through a major job or career change. Come to that class and we will help you to understand how your job, how your career can glorify God. So we'd love to train you in that. If you're interested, just send an RSVP email to juliewhite at grace-bible.org. Okay, let me close this in prayer and ask God to help us with this. Lord God, we praise you and thank you that you are worthy of every minute of our lives. 
All of it belongs to you because your son Jesus, he, he died for us. He rose from the dead for us to give us eternal life as an absolutely free gift. You are a God who gives. You are a God who is gracious and loving. You save us based on grace alone. You don't make us work for that. You are so good to us, Father. And as a result, you are worthy of everything in our lives, including our jobs, our businesses, our vocations. All of it is yours. And so God, right now, we want to come before you and we want to pray that you would soften our hearts, that you would break down our defenses, that you would convict us and challenge us to lay everything at your feet, to lay our inheritances at your feet, to lay our bank accounts at your feet, to lay our houses and our land and our assets at your feet, to lay our businesses and our careers and and our, our vocations at your feet, to lay our jobs and our wages at your feet. We put it all at your feet, God, and we pray that with these things, you would be glorified and that you would bless the world. We pray that you would guide us, Lord. We live in this age of the Spirit. We need you to speak to each and every one of us to guide and direct how we apply these principles in our own jobs starting tomorrow morning. We pray, help us to hear these commands and absorb them and through the the leading of your Spirit and the direction of your Word to live them out in a way that is truly gracious, truly radical in this world so that people might see how good and worthy your Son Jesus is. We pray pray that what we do in our vocations would glorify Jesus to this world. We pray that we would be different than the people around us, that we would be truly loving and gracious. Thank you again, God, that you are worthy. We pray that every part of our lives would please you. In Jesus' name we say, amen. God bless you guys. Have a great work week.